Anaphora as coping mechanism. Can't sleep, so you put on his gray boots, nothing else, and step inside the rain. Even though he's gone, you think, I still want to be clean. If only the rain were gasoline, your tongue a lit match, and you can change without disappearing. If only he dies the second his name becomes a tooth in your mouth. But he doesn't. He dies when they wheel him away and the priest ushers you out of the room, your palms two puddles of rain. He dies as your heart beats faster, as another war coppers the sky. He dies each night you close your eyes and hear his slow exhale, your fist choking the dark, your fist through the bathroom mirror. He dies at the party where everyone laughs and all you want is to go into the kitchen and make seven omelets before burning down the house. All you want is to run into the woods and beg the wolf to fuck you up. He dies when you wake and it's November forever. A Hendrix record melted on a rusted needle. He dies the morning he kisses you for two minutes too long. When he says, wait, followed by, I have something to say and you quickly grab your favorite pink pillow and smother him as he cries into the soft and darkening fabric. You hold still until he's very quiet, until the walls dissolve, and you're both standing in the crowded train again. Look how it rocks you back and forth, like a slow dance, seen from the distance of years. You're still a freshman. You're still terrified of having only two hands, and he doesn't know your name yet, but he smiles anyway, his teeth reflected in the window, reflecting your lips as you mouth, hello, your tongue a lit match. This is Bailey Kobelin coming to you from inside the infinite kaleidoscope. Welcome to the infinite kaleidoscope, a space where we talk to creatives about being creative. I'm your host, Kristen Kofer. My name is Bailey Koblen, and I am a photographer and artist currently based out of Los Angeles. My mom is a really incredible artist, so I feel like I was really lucky to grow up in a really creative household. Ever since I can remember, she was always encouraging us to draw and paint and go to museums. But I didn't really get into photography until I started working at a live music venue. And then I felt like I really wanted to photograph the bands that I was seeing. And then I didn't really feel like a photographer till I started learning darkroom photography. So printing and developing, which I got to do at Laney Community College in one of the last remaining darkrooms in colleges. Do you remember how old you were when you first started taking photos? Well, funny enough, I remember as a kid, I lived in a very communal neighborhood. So it was the kind of thing where we all knew our neighbors and would all spend a lot of time at each other's houses and things like that. I remember my mom gave me a little flip camera for my birthday and I would just follow everyone around filming them. I, I would always take pictures of all the neighborhood animals too. I met Bailey Cobellin when they were a teenager. They had an interest in my photography, and I tried to explain how I did certain things. In the years after our meeting, they have assisted me on numerous photo shoots, 
and I've even assisted Bailey. Bailey has taught me a lot, and I feel lucky to have such an intelligent and supportive friend. I know Bailey hates it when I bring up their age. Honestly, Bailey is an old soul at heart. But I was just so curious, as the only Gen Z that I'm good friends with. How was it being born into technology? Do you remember a time before phones? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think I got my first phone when I was 13, I think. And I remember I wasn't allowed to text or call on it. It was only if there was an emergency. Do you think that besides the cell phone being an emergency tool, that it was also something you wanted to create art with? Yeah, I remember using disposable cameras as a kid. But like, I think the generation you grew up with, you're always going to use the tools that are most readily there. So now, like, I feel you have kids using iPhones and taking photos from a really young age. So I think that I use those flip phones just because it was what was readily available at the time. But when you learn more about the art, of photography, I think that you start having appreciation for a lot of the older and newer things like analog film photography and then, you know, the brand new shiny cameras that make the perfect digital photos. Yeah. Well, they make the perfect digital photo when you know how to use it. Oh, yes, that's true. I actually just bought a four by five camera, so I'm really excited to learn that. I've talked to a lot of photographers that say they never felt like they really got the craft of photography completely until they did four by (laughs) five. So I think that's interesting. It definitely feels like a really new world because you really have to calculate a lot more of what you're doing. And since the film is so expensive, it's less trial and error. Have you taken any photos with it yet? I've been in an artistic rut lately, so it sits on my shelf and it mocks me, but (laughs) I plan to take photos of it soon. The whole pandemic has made it harder in some ways. It's been many waves and it's helped me take a lot of time away from social groups that I think influence all of us in certain ways. Some of that isolation, I think, was really great for my painting. I started doing a lot of surreal painting. I used to work at Amoeba Music, and before they closed because of COVID, I took a bunch of old vinyl records that they were going to throw away. So I used those to paint on, and it got me into painting on other surfaces because I feel like for a long time, I really hated painting on canvas because a blank canvas really stressed me out. I didn't know what to put on it, but having these records, what I did is I made each piece according to the song title on the record. And I would even listen to that song while I was painting it. And and because records, they have this shape to them, right? There's circles and there's an inner label. And so I would paint not on the label, but within just the vinyl part. And so I think having a shape and then also having those sounds and like a theme, I I consider each one has like a theme based on the song title. It it gave me sort of like thing to start with. It wasn't just a blank canvas. There was already something there. How many of those records did you paint? I've done be about five 12 inch records and then about 15 of the seven inch records um, and a couple laser discs. I, I hope to sell them at shows. I feel like the nice thing about making 
paintings compared to photography is that you really only have one. Especially with this, it would be difficult to make prints of these paintings. So I do like the idea of having this more tangible artwork out there. When you are not in an artistic rut, how do you find inspiration? The reason I think I've been in a bit of a rut because of COVID is a lot of my inspiration came from my queer music community that I was a part of in the Bay Area. And just going to shows with really amazing artists and meeting cool people everywhere I went, that was really inspiring to me. I think that at the core of good art, there is a lot of community there. I don't think that artists build themselves up in the same way we consider successful like businessmen for example as like self-made I feel like to be a really good artist you have to be community made because to me that's just a really important foundation of creating something I do feel like not having that community as much anymore has definitely made it harder for me to create Bailey, I've been thinking about this all day. Let's talk about death and dying. (laughs) So when I was a student at Laney Community College, I started a project called Mortality Salience. And this project was inspired by a class I took at Berkeley City College called The Sociology of Death and Dying. But it wasn't until I took this class that I realized that there were so many intricate layers in the death system. And to me, that includes just all of the legal aspects, all of the ways that our current system of death functions. But it also includes just the deep histories and cultures and traditions that so many different people have and also just the changes over time and it just became a really fascinating topic to me on all of these different levels so this project that I created was to combine that sociological interest with traditional black and white film photography which I was also studying so I brought people into a studio I even brought you my dear friend to my studio. And I interviewed people about their experience with death and dying. I tried to ask a range of questions to give people the option to either speak about their personal traditions and beliefs, or speak about just their general thoughts about death and dying, or if they felt comfortable enough to share an experience of bereavement. Then after we had this conversation, I took their photograph. When you're alone in a room with someone and you're having a conversation that can often be emotional, I think that there was a very deep connection that I was able to capture in those portraits. Then I had an art show at Econo Jam Records in Oakland, which is a really amazing record store. I had the photographs displayed along with text from the interviews, which I selected based on what I thought was the most uh, unique thing that someone had said. The photos stayed up for about a month, and it was really great hearing what people had to say about it. One of the employees at Econojam was telling me that he witnessed people walking in and having conversations about their own experiences with death and dying after seeing the project. And to me, that was the most powerful 
thing anyone has ever said about anything I've created. <laughs> I hope it to be an ongoing project. The other portion of it is just the years I've spent photographing cemetery architecture. So that was an interest I had when I had first started learning photography because I really wanted to practice shooting film and printing on faces. So I would go to Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland and I would photograph the statue's faces to practice portraiture. And that sort of evolved into my sociological interests where I was thinking just how much different cemetery scapes across different places in the world and throughout time like what they show us about the societies and about the individuals living in those societies so now anywhere I go I always have to find the cemetery and photograph the art there. <laughs> Are you still photographing cemetery architecture? Yes, actually, I've been slowly breaking from my lull in little increments. So about two weeks ago, I went to Evergreen Cemetery in East LA, and I brought one of my medium format cameras and photographed with that, which I hadn't done in a long time. And I actually just got the film back. I haven't scanned it yet, but it turned out really good. You know, I went alone on a day off, and I just really took my time. If you could do anything going forward in your creative path and don't worry about restrictions or anything right now, just fantasy, what would you do? I think that I would put my time into making more physical prints because a lot of my work right now, it only exists in digital scapes. And I only ever feel like I've created a photograph when I'm holding it in my hands. So I would love to start printing really big too and just put the physical art out there for people to see, whether it's just like selling prints on the side of the street or having the work in galleries. I think that would be a really important step forward for me. I can see your work in art galleries. How can people find your work? I have a website and I unfortunately have an Instagram. The website is baileycobelin.com and my Instagram handle is also baileycobelin. From going to your website or Instagram, is that how people can contact you? Yes. I'm offering virtual portraits still for people that are cautious of COVID or people that live outside of Los Angeles. I'm always looking to create with people, whether it's photo or video. Tell us more about your virtual photography. I thought that it would be a really interesting thing to experiment with. My first thought was that I could project people's faces really big onto different objects and surfaces. So that's what I initially started playing around with. And then later down the line, because I was painting so much, I took inspiration from the work you were doing with the water trays. And instead I was using overhead projector sheets and just painting on people's faces and then taking photos. So that was really great. Why do you think you enjoyed doing this? Well, I think what I enjoyed the most about it at first was just having an excuse to talk to someone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I a lot of us got pretty lonely there at the beginning. 
But eventually I really respected the way that this craft can shape and mold according to the social conditions. Photography, especially, you know, we're both interested in portraiture and that's something that requires human interaction. And so to create something that uses the foundation of portrait photography, but doesn't involve interaction to me, that was a revolutionary idea. I think it's incredible how many photographers were able to do this and just how it reflects what our social world was like at that time. And also just the way you can push the medium. So in a way, it almost allows you to do more, like you're pushing the medium in a different direction, which I think is really interesting. Going back to my project, Mortality Salience is one thing that is really special to me about that project is that I haven't put any of the portraits or any of the quotes online. There's a description of the project on my website, but that's it because I really wanted at least one project that didn't have to touch that world. I have a lot of different thoughts about death and dying because I come from a lot of different perspectives. I think that I have dealt with my own personal grief. I've studied death and dying. When I was an undergrad at UCLA, I did my research on grief. And now I work a full-time job at a funeral home. So I deal with a lot of people in all different types of stages of grief and all different types of mourning practices and all different types of deaths. And I don't know, I don't think that age necessarily plays a role in how you're going to think about your mortality. Yeah, I mean, that's something that is important to me as someone that has talked to a lot of people in all different areas of life. I mean, I really don't think that age is as prevalent. People experience grief and loss at all ages of their life. And I think that focusing on just older people has some consequences. You can leave out people that have experiences at younger ages, but also just the fact that people do unfortunately die at younger ages. It's not always something that happens to someone when they get old. So that's something that's always important for me to think about. And then there's also people that are, you know, in their 90s that don't even think about their own death. And also, I, I don't think that you're ever too young to plan your death if that's something, you know, you can do. At least planning certain parts out can be really beneficial. Honestly, dying is really expensive. So the more that you prepare in advance, the easier I think it is for everyone at any stage. Um, and of course, you know, there's only so much you can do. But if you know, for example, that you really, really want to be interred at a specific cemetery, see about buying a plot if you can and if that's what you want. Things like that, I think, is something I've noticed save families like a lot of trouble when it comes to figuring things out when someone passes away. I think it's really important to talk about death and dying if you're comfortable with it, because I know for some people, you can be at a point in your life or in your grief where you really can't talk about it. I respect that, which is why my art project, it's all volunteer based. I try not to ask or pressure anyone to be a part of it. 
I really want people who want to have these conversations because in a way it is a really weird, uncomfortable topic for some people. And I think that's something that we really need to change. It's not going to be helpful when you have a loved one who's experiencing grief and you're not comfortable being there and talking about it. Do you want to continue working in this world? Yeah, so far, I I really enjoy my job. It can be very difficult at times, but I learn something new every day. And I think that's not something you can say about most jobs. Bailey is really passionate when they talk about death and dying. And they probably made you think a little bit about your own experiences. I asked Bailey to give us advice to anyone who wants to learn photography or more about the study of death and dying. I think if you want to get into photography, you should absolutely learn film. And I think if you have the ability to get your foot in the door of a dark room, that is going to forever change the way that you see photography. And I think that it is only going to make your digital photography better. So I definitely advise people to learn as much as they can about developing and printing film. And then I guess in terms of the death industry, it really depends what kind of work you want to do. Um, But I think it is important to think about what you'll be dealing with, because honestly, like the hardest part of my job isn't dealing with decedents. It's dealing with a lot of just a very, very emotional environment and very emotional people that you're dealing with just on a daily basis. So for that, I feel like I've had to be emotionally stable myself which is something I thought about too, going into this, like, am I ready to have a job where I can't just zone out or come in late or things like that? Do you have any advice for what you do to stay stable? It's always just going to be art. I think that's what really helps me. I've been writing a lot more lately just to get my thoughts onto something. And for me, painting is always my more emotional outlet than photography because it's very physical action, I think, to put something onto a canvas or onto a piece of paper. But for me, it's just really therapeutic, just the action of it. Bailey. Tell us more about the poem you read at the beginning of the show. So that poem is by Ocean Vuong, who is a queer poet and author. And it's from his 2016 collection called Night Sky with Exit Wounds. And I really love that poem because to me, it's a really beautiful poem about grief and loss. And it's not necessarily clear what kind of loss, which I I like because I think I've read that poem and I've applied it to losing a friend or losing a relationship I cared about or losing someone who passed away. So it's definitely my favorite poem about death and dying. It's a beautiful poem. If you could give advice to yourself right now, how would you tell yourself to get out of your art rut? stop binge watching the x-files and get out of bed (laughs) (laughs) no okay I think that I would tell myself well actually this is advice that my mom gave me who by the way is an amazing painter Jules Kovalin huge shout out to my mom she's incredible But she told me that if you feel like you just need to lie in bed all day and do nothing listen to your body 
because when creativity comes, it's going to come and you're going to act on it. But I think that a lot of the time, creative people feel a lot of pressure from capitalist systems that are saying you have to make something. But if you don't feel like making anything and you're in this creative rut, that's okay. So that's what I'm trying to remind myself that when my inspiration comes, I'm going to use it and I'm going to create. But if it's not here right now, that's okay. That is great advice. The more creatives I talk to, there seems to be a theme about being made to feel that you have to constantly produce. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning with the internet. (laughs) No, I mean, it's really hard. Sometimes I get so depressed about putting my photos on Instagram because it's like this constant tie between I know that art can be above and outside of capitalism. But at the same time, when you work so hard on something and you did it all for free and then you put it out on Instagram and people see it for free, it can sometimes just feel really degrading. And I want to share my art, but I feel like I need something more. I need a more tangible experience. I mean, especially if I'm not going to be able to pay bills on art, then there has to be, you know, some kind of interaction. It's going down a really dark path, but hearing that so many people have the same feelings about it as I do kind of gives me some hope that we can find a different way to share our artwork. I mean, that's the other thing too about my project, Mortality Salience. It's important for me to keep it in person because it's something that I can do as an artist. It's one thing I can do to preserve that realness of art because, you know, owning an NFT or seeing someone's work on Instagram, it's never going to be the same as being in a room with humans experiencing that. But at the same time, I feel like COVID changed my perspective. Before COVID, I was so set on this project not being online. And then COVID really made me reevaluate that because we got in a situation where, you know, it's not safe still for a lot of people to be in Mm -hmm. rooms with other people. And while that's something we never really imagined, it's drawing attention to a lot of things I didn't think about and things where, okay, well, art is possibly going to have to exist digitally. And there are benefits to that. I mean, you can reach people in all walks of life and all over the world who won't have access to your work otherwise, but like, how can we do it in a way that really uplifts the artists and gives back to them? Do people in their 20s still make each other mixes or is it all digital? It sucks. No one sends you a mix at all. I don't know. I have a really bad track record of dating, so (laughs) I cannot attest to if people are sending each other Spotify playlists. I don't know. To me, the best thing anyone has ever given me are books and records. Yeah. Even since I've been a kid, I've always loved collecting things and holding things. You know, I used to always collect rocks and crystals and I've always had a respect for something that I can hold. Maybe I'm just like really materialistic. You know, to me, when you can't hold and see art, it's a lot harder to appreciate it. I agree with you. 
you know, I work right now with a lot of older people and a lot of people from like really different belief systems. And since I moved to LA, I've mostly met straight people. I don't know how that happened, but it's been interesting, you know, talking to people that don't get certain things. I feel like in some ways I need to explain them because I don't feel like that should be the responsibility of trans people. I feel like cis queer people should really step up and do what they can. But at the same time, there's only so much you can explain because it just doesn't exist in people's minds in some ways. I'm sure you do it in a way that doesn't make them feel bad. No, I think that that is one issue I have with younger queer people is I think they have a lot of anger. And I respect that. And I I totally get that. But I don't think that the way a lot of people use that anger towards like cis and straight culture, it's not a constructive anger. I think that people really just need kindness, even if they're filled with hate, because a lot of the time that hate, it just comes from a lack of knowledge or just not understanding. And there's, there's many ways you can talk to people. And even if they don't understand you, you can at least, you know, gain their respect. I think that right now is a really difficult time for a lot of people. So just remembering to be kind to people, but also just do what you can to keep the things you love alive. Because it's honestly, it's heartbreaking to see so many places disappear because of COVID. Just support small businesses in any way you can pay your friends that are artists, pay artists that even aren't your friends, just show people that you care about the things they're doing that are outside of bureaucratic capitalism. Because I think that that's like the only way that our scenes and our music and our art is going to make it. I think that is beautiful. Thanks. And that's how I feel. I feel like to be a really good artist, you have to be community made. To me, that's just a really important foundation of creating something. Thank you, Bailey Cabellan, for being so open with us. You can find links to their photography work and project Mortality Salience in the show notes. I love what Bailey said about supporting artists. That is really what it's all about, right? In the end, all we have is each other and art. This episode was produced by me and mixed and mastered and edited by Jess Labrador. The theme music is by Chelsea Wolfe and Ben Chisholm. Other music in the episode is by Jess Labrador. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And thank you to everyone who has. Thank you again, and I will see you here soon with another creative and their story. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcast.bff.fm. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever.